want to begin by asking you to listen to the simple verse and these simple words that are important words. Quoting from 2 Corinthians, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. We saw last week in our study of 2 Corinthians 3 that it is only by the supernatural power of God through the gospel that the veil, the blinder, if you will, is removed from our eyes so that we can read and understand the Old Testament the right way. We can read and understand the Mosaic Law the right way. If you have a Bible, you can turn to that text. We're going to look at it in some detail. But it really is a, a kind of a shocking kind of statement. It's very, it's profound, it's important. How can we rightfully understand, how can we rightly understand what God has said through the Law of Moses? The Apostle Paul goes so far as to say the only way to rightly interpret it and rightly understand it is to supernaturally have the veil taken off of your eyes. He actually says off of your heart because it's a spiritual matter. But to have it removed so you can have, if you will, that aha moment. So that you can, as we saw last week, so that you can understand that history was going somewhere. Uh, throughout the Old Testament. So we can understand and so that you can understand that all of those things that happen, whether it be tabernacle or temple, priests, sacrifices, all of those things were designed not as end games, but that they were what other authors of Scripture would call types and shadows. All of those things were designed to lead us toward the ultimate, the substance, not the type or the shadow, but the substance, the antitype, the fulfillment, who is Christ, the ultimate lamb, the ultimate priest, the ultimate tabernacle, the ultimate temple. And so I, based upon that last week, said, the interpretive key for the Old Testament has to be faith in Christ. It's a controversial statement. People I know don't believe that. I have enemies who don't believe that. I have friends who don't believe that. I know, obviously, non-Christians who don't believe that, but I know lots of Christians who don't believe that. So what I would like to do this morning is not move to chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. Uh, the sermon's all done. It wasn't because I was at a wedding till 1 a.m. last night, though I was. Um, but I don't want to move to chapter 4. I want to take some time to sort of... Um, talk about things that are related to that profound statement. Through faith in Christ, the veil is removed. Then we can understand law of Moses. So what I want to do this morning, at least this morning, maybe next week as well, to look at 10 reasons why we must, as Christians, read and understand and teach the whole Bible from a Christ-centered perspective. So 10 reasons why we, as Christians, must read, understand, teach, preach, the whole Bible from a Christ-centered perspective, okay? So I hope I'm helping you if you're a parent. I'm helping you if you're a teacher, a preacher, helping myself as well, helping us as a church. How do we view these things? Well, we're Christians. Let's do this in a, in a Christ-honoring way, a Christ-centric kind of way. And again, I know it's controversial. Maybe that's kind of why I want to do it. Um, because we're not all on the same page around the world on this. And I want to give you my case, my argument to help you and hopefully help us as a church. So reason number one why we need to take, uh, read the Bible, understand the Bible from a Christ-centered perspective. Uh, 
Reason number one will come from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 from last week. But here's the reason. To do otherwise reflects unbelief. To do otherwise reflects unbelief. If we don't do it that way, we're acting like unbelievers. We're pretending like we're not believers when we're trying to understand the Bible, which sounds kind of silly to act like an unbeliever when you read the Bible. Okay, So let's look at our text again. Chapter 3, verse 14 of 2 Corinthians. But their minds were hardened. Is that good or bad? That's a bad thing. For to, do the, to, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, the veil lies over their hearts. But when, the, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. It's about all I need to say, I think. Why would we want to try to pretend? Why would we want to try to pretend like we're unbelievers? I don't know, but it's been suggested to me. I have multiple books on my shelf on hermeneutics, to drop a big word. Hermeneutics, how how we understand things, how to interpret the Bible. Okay, On hermeneutics it says, you should never read the Old Testament in light of Christ. Okay, And it's wrong to do so. Multiple books on my shelf say, I'm suggesting to you that that seems to be the exact opposite of what the Apostle Paul is saying. The veil, the blinder that is there, the spiritual blinder comes off and now you can read the Law of Moses, now you can read the Old and you can understand that it's types and shadows, not end games in and of themselves. And you can understand temple. And you can understand that when Jesus said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again, And he's talking about himself. He says he's talking about himself. So then when we go back to the old and read about temple, we can know history's going somewhere. It's in anticipation. Christ is the ultimate temple. It was all part of a plan. And it gets exciting that way. Gospels are that way as well. I don't read the Gospel of Matthew pretending all along like I don't know Jesus is going to die and rise again throughout the whole thing, I'm anticipating that because then the whole thing makes sense. Can we move on to number two? Let's go to number two. Number two, why should we as Christians read the Bible, the whole Bible, Old and New Testament from a Christ-centered perspective? And number two is we are Christians. We should read the Bible like Christians. I'm so smart. Because we're Christians. Maybe I'm not so smart, but the obvious can be pretty helpful. I'm going to read the Bible like a Christian because I'm a Christian. And I think Christians should read the Bible like Christians because they're Christians. Well, there's a little bit more to it. There's a little bit more to it because, and I say this a lot, so I apologize if you've heard it so many times, but if not, here goes. In the Old Testament, Messiah is an anointed one. There are many messiahs. If you have a king, they're anointed. Priests, they're anointed. Uh, sim- symbolically with oil because they're going to do something very special. They're, they're, they're sacred. They're set apart to do a certain special kind of duty. Okay, So whether it's King David or whatever king, they'd be anointed as king. Well, it's the word messiah. So they're messiahed as king. They're anointed as king. 
in the New Testament, Christ is the Greek word that's replacing the Old Testament Hebrew word Messiah. Now we have Christos, Christ. Talking about the same concept, same idea. Christ in the New Testament means anointed one. As a matter of fact, don't let me lose you, where we have a Greek version of the Old Testament, so originally in Hebrew, but there is a Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, sometimes it's a shorthand in books you read, LXX. The Septuagint translates Messiah, anointed one. The Greek version translates it Christos, Christ. We're talking about the same thing. So Christians should interpret the Old Testament and New Testament from a Christ-centered perspective because it's the word that's used. Uh, we, if, if you want to talk like a Hebrew, we're messy messiahs or something like that. It doesn't sound right. Um, of course we're going to do this. We, we can, we're, we're not saying um, there, we're, we're taking something in the new and, and somehow changing the old. The whole thing is about Messiah, anticipated Messiah, anticipated Messiah. We have all these Messiahs and they fail. We need a greater Messiah. Psalm chapter 2, for example, um, he has anointed his king. The Lord has anointed his king. He's Messiahed his king to rule and reign over all. You know Psalm 2, that great psalm that's, that's messianic, that's prophetic, that the book of Acts quotes again and again regarding Jesus connecting the dots. So we're going to read the whole Bible like Christians because the whole Bible is Christian. Especially when we just stop and think about Messiah, Christ. That's what it's all about. Although I heard one teacher not too long ago, a Christian scholar with lots of letters behind his name who's written lots and lots of books, scold people like me and you perhaps for reading the Old Testament like Christians because he said... No one was ever called a Christian until Acts chapter 11. Because they were first called Christians in Antioch. How would you respond? Well, I would respond and say, that's ludicrous. That's crazy. Because even though they might not have been labeled Christians, the word is the word for Messiah. There have always been people throughout Old Testament history who were waiting for the Messiah. Maybe they weren't called Christians because it's a... Septuagint or Greek word, but we're talking about the same things. We're talking about the exact same thing. They were first labeled Christians, but what were they believing all along? Messiah will save his people from their sins. He will deliver them from your sins. And if you're talking Hebrew, you're going to say Messiah. And if you're talking Greek, you're going to say Christ. But pejoratively, negatively, they might give them the label. Those are the Christians. So, let's read the Bible like Christians because we are Christians. And what happens throughout the book of Acts? What happens throughout the book of Acts in the sermons of Stephen, in the sermons of Paul, in the sermons of Peter, they're trying to show everyone they're connecting the dots. The Old Testament long-awaited, promised, deliverer, Messiah, forever ruling king, Christ, is Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one. That's what they do throughout the whole thing. So let's read the Bible like Christians, like Messiahins, okay? It's kind of a no-brainer. What number are we on? Number three. Number three. Let's read and understand the Bible from a Christian perspective, a Christ-centered perspective, because to do so is apostolic. It's what the apostles did. 
doesn't mean we're apostles, but I think we should learn from the apostles. This is how they interpreted the old. This is how they interpreted the new. This is how they interpreted all of history. If you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 5. We'll just look at one text. If I can help you think this way, I think I can help you a lot. I think I can help you for the rest of your Christian life. I think I can help equip you, disciple you to to have things make sense. And to also hear it when you hear other things to say that doesn't make sense. It's a bad argument. I want to help you and I want to help you honor Christ and, and, and see things for the way they're supposed to be seen. It's apostolic. To put that point another way, what we do when we find how the apostles did it is we, we have an, in the New Testament, we have a divinely inspired interpretation of all of history. Think about that. In Romans 5, we have a divinely inspired, that's what Christians believe, the Apostle Paul's writing under inspiration, controlled by God. We have a divinely inspired interpretation of all of human history. And before we actually read it, the Apostle Paul says all of human history can be understood through two lenses. The lens of Adam number one, the representative of the human race, and the lens of Adam number two, the representative of everyone who would ever believe through that lens. And he sees all of human history through the two Adams. And he's therefore Christ-centered because once you have the fall, everything regards the one who would come as, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam. We have the first Adam, we have the last Adam. Let's go ahead and look. I had all of Romans 5 written down and then we would be here a long time. Then I crossed out verses 12 and following and whittled it down, 1 to 11. Then I whittled it down. Uh, Let's just look at verse 18 and 19. So in 18 and 19, here's the apostolic hermeneutic. Here's the inspired hermeneutic. 18 says, Therefore, as one trespass, that's a violation of, of standard, violation of law, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so, one, so, so that he's talking about the first Adam. He calls him Adam earlier in verse 14, but we won't go back there. Now after the comma in verse 18, so one act of righteousness, of law upholding, leads to justification and life for all men. And in the context, it would be all those who would believe based upon chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, and 5. But you see the one, and you see the one. Then 19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous made righteous before God. It's a legal context. Declared righteous is the idea. This is where, where I have my, my, my aha moment. This is where I have my, where have you been my whole life? Why didn't someone sit me down when I was young and reading the Bible and say, listen, I can help you a lot. There's still a lot of 
there's still a lot of complexity. There's still a lot of turns and twists in the, in the narrative. And there's lots of drama that goes on. It's interesting. But, but, but here's the Apostle Paul writing under inspiration saying, let me explain all of human history to you. Representative number one, crashes and burns doesn't go so well. Representative number two, perfectly upholds the law, perfectly righteous, atones for law-breaking also, and if you trust in Him, you're declared righteous, you're justified. So post-Genesis 3 fall, or mid-Genesis 3 fall, once we get to Genesis 3.15, we have the, the promise. We go from lens number one to lens number two, even if it's in anticipation. We're waiting. We're expecting. Even Mary, I've had a child uh, with with the Lord's help. Is is this the one who's going to fulfill the promise of Genesis chapter 3? No, it's not, and we've got a long way to go. But, But it's always now we're waiting for the second and last Adam representative to lead us. So I would suggest to you that it's good to read the whole narrative, Genesis 3.15 and following, anticipating, waiting, looking, and then we find fulfillment. That's a Christ-centered perspective of things. Two lenses. Federal representation is what we talk about. I will give my life. This, This is my discipleship model. If I can help you read the Bible that way, you can have assurance of guilt <laughs> because you're in Adam and know that you need a Savior. And you can have assurance of salvation because you're resting in the one who fulfills and who justifies because of his perfect work, his act of obedience. And all of the great stuff along the way is good and important and significant, some more significant than others, but ultimately we're talking about those two perspectives. Let's move on to number four. Number four, fourth reason why Christians should read the Bible, the whole Bible, understand the whole Bible from a Christ-centered kind of perspective. Number four, this one's risky, the pactum. See the look? The pactum. Well, I've just figured since I once upon a time had a class from R.C. Sproul, I could use Latin. So I'm going to use Latin because he did all the time. So in honor of the late Dr. Sproul and studying under him in a class, uh, I'm going to use Latin. The pactum. Shorthand for the pactum salutis. Pact. Think, think pactum. Think pact. Think agreement, formal agreement. Think covenant, something formally established like in a marriage. The pactum, the pactum salutis, the agreement of salvation. The the agreement of redemption. And where we're going to go is Ephesians chapter 1. Because in Ephesians chapter 1, we have this amazing, amazing, amazing text that takes us before Genesis 1-1. And we have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the triune God before time begins, and we have a, an agreement that is made. The Father and the Son before time, they, they, they make a pact, if you will, an agreement to redeem lost sinners. And the Father will formally send the Son. Think about John chapter 17. 
And the Son will do the work that the Father gives Him to do. Think about John chapter 17. And the Holy Spirit will apply the work of the Son. That's Ephesians chapter 1. So here's, here's what I'm saying. If before time begins there's a plan for redemption amongst the triune Godhead. Do I have three fingers? Yes. Um, amongst the tri- if there's a purpose and a plan before Genesis 1-1, why in the world would we think there would be no hint of it throughout everything and maybe in Matthew 1-1 it shows up? No, before time begins there's a purpose and there's a plan. There's the pactum salutis. So people who believe that in Ephesians chapter 1, we look for it. We look for it. How, how is this playing out? How is this leading us to that place? How does the Mosaic law fit into this? How does the Levitical priesthood fit into this? How does etc., etc., etc. fit into this? Ephesians 1 gives us some insight. How about verse, oh, where should we start? Let's start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. So just to point out the obvious, we have the Father, we have the Son, right? Blessed us in Christ. Uh, Let's drop down to verse 4, and I'm going to cherry pick a little bit. Sorry about that. Uh, Before the foundation of the world. Maybe we'll back up in verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him, in Christ. So the Father chooses us in Christ before the foundation of the world that that we should be holy and blameless before Him. You go, whoa! We've we just been given insight if this is true, and I believe it is, Christians do, before time begins, before the foundation of the world, there's this purposefulness, there's this plan, there's this commitment. H- how about if we go to, it's through Jesus Christ, uh, in verse 5, at the end of verse 5, according to the purpose of His will. See, there's a plan uh, he talks about redemption in verse 7. How about verse 9, halfway through? According to His purpose, there it is again, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. How about verse 11, halfway through? Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the... Uh, here we go again, more of that pactum kind of talk. The counsel of His will. Then if we drop down to verse 13 at the end, he talks about being sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then I had us all the way down to verse 23, but I'm I'm catching on after 20 years. I'm going to skip those verses. What I want you to see, we're going to read the whole Bible, including Genesis, from a Christ-centered perspective because before Genesis 1-1, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, And there is a plan, there is a purpose, counsel, there's the counsel. There's a will to be carried out and everything works together to carry out that plan. Of course I'm looking for signs, I'm looking for anticipation, I'm looking for the unfolding of the drama throughout because there's something that comes before Genesis 1-1 and it's that purpose. You see why I get excited about this? Super exciting. Why wouldn't I be looking for signs of the unfolding plan to happen? Oh, I had some theological definitions that I might. Textbook, okay, just for those of you who want textbook. 
The pactum salutis has been, has been defined as the pre-temporal, intra-Trinitarian. I love those kind of words. Intra-Trinitarian agreement between the Father and the Son in which the Father promises to redeem and elect people. In turn, the Son volunteers to earn the salvation of His people by becoming incarnate, by acting as surety of the covenant of grace for for and as mediator of the covenant of grace to the elect. In his active and passive obedience, Christ fulfills the conditions of the pactum salutis, ratifying the Father's promise because of which the Father's reward, uh, Father rewards the Son's obedience with the salvation of the elect. And because of the Holy Spirit applies the Son's work to his people. Well, that's what I said earlier. Maybe one other helpful quote uh, from a different author. This is from Mike Horton. The pactum salutis is the basis for all of God's purposes in nature and history. And I would agree with that based upon the fact it's counsel unfolding all things. I'm going to look for it throughout Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, etc. Old Testament as... I think Augustine said, uh, is, is Christ in anticipation, right? Something along those lines. And then we're in the New Testament. Now we have fulfillment in realization, actualiz- actualization. But the whole thing is ultimately with Christ, the preeminent one. Are we doing okay? I'm doing great. I want to go to John 17. I was just talking to a a church member earlier, a young man, and he was excited about trying to figure some of this kind of stuff out. And I said, isn't it great to, to, to have categories and to connect dots? And he's like, yeah. And I said, and it'll ruin you for life. It will, in the best senses. Because we're afforded with, again, categories for understanding things. It's not just, I, I, I have a, you know, a bigger platform and say, you should read the Bible Christ-centeredly. And you should do that because I have lots of followers on Twitter. And then somebody else has more followers than me, and they're going to tell you the opposite. Instead, to, to actually see, oh, this makes total sense. What happens pre-temporally? And then you're going to drop some knowledge on me and you're going to say things like intra-Trinitarian. You don't have to say it that way. But you can see all three members before time with a purpose and a plan. Let's look for signs of it unfolding. What's happened is the veil, spiritually, comes off and you go, ah, those are types and shadows. I love it. Let's go to number five. We can do this one quickly, said every preacher and never a minute, right? Uh, A fifth reason for us to read it from a Christ-centered perspective would be the progress of revelation. The progress of revelation. Um, There's there's an unfolding, but it's, it's, it's moving forward and becoming clearer. Progress of revelation. Some, yeah, we'll just leave it at that. Unfolding drama. Some people call it redemptive history, how it's unfolding. Hebrews 1 would be the classic text for this, I think. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 1. 
And in, in Hebrews, what you have so much of is all of this Old Covenant world stuff that's important. But what you have is the author to Hebrews showing that, that Christ is the fulfillment. And now that you have the fulfillment, it would be wrong to go back to the types and shadows. But what's interesting is we do have the types and shadows and we have all of those things in anticipation because history's moving somewhere, but where it's moving is to have Christ be at the center. He's the apex. He's the high point. He's the one we've been waiting for. And so he connects the dots for us. Hebrews 1, it's hard to read Hebrews 1 without some good kind of energy in your voice where it says in Hebrews 1, 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Two, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. And I, I'm just going to pause for a second. Last days, it's the Son, but oh, by the way, He's the one through whom He created the world. Even that helps me to draw some connection to see, well, all the stuff that's been going on in the meantime somehow must be related to Him. But let's keep moving. Through, uh, verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. History's been going somewhere. Even from this pre-incarnate creator son, he comes into the world and he fulfills all of those things that have been talked about. That's why you shouldn't go back to those things if you're a Hebrew. His work as high priest is done. He sat down. He's highly exalted and great and grand. I'm going to read all of the stuff that came before him, especially given the fact that he's the eternal one who's the creator one in light of what he did. I'm also, I'm also, how about this? I'm not going to do what I'm going to call regressive revelation. Because I don't think the Bible wants us to do regressive revelation. This gets dangerous because it meddles with our theological systems. Jesus shows up and says, destroy this temple and, and, and I'll rebuild it in three days. What's the ultimate temple? Wrong way to ask the question. Who's the ultimate temple? It's Christ. In these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son. Climax, high point, more significant, great, endgame, substance, antitype. So I'm not longing for a new temple to be built. Sending my money to the guy on TV who says we need to do it. Interesting. This is one reason, by the way, why people don't want you to do Christ-centered. Because if you do Christ-centered, He is the great one, not anything or anyone else. Things that have gone before have played important roles. But a Christ-centered perspective has Him as, in these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son. 
And you say, but wait a minute, I think we need to... Wait a second. It's a threat. Let's move on. Let's move on to number six. Man, we are flying. This is wonderful. Number six. There's only one divine author. There's only one divine author. No, I don't mean to say it that way. There is one divine author. There is one divine author. 2 Timothy 3.16 is the passage we know well. I'll reference it. Also, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. I heard lots of pastors uh, on social media this week, as you're turning to 2 Timothy 3, talking about how, why is it that on Mother's Day we preach great sermons about how awesome mothers are, and on Father's Day we just beat up the dads for being deadbeats. I don't do either. We're just learning about Jesus is great. So, dads, happy Father's Day. (laughs) And moms, happy Mother's Day, right? We're looking outside of ourselves. We're looking to the one who will matter forever. By the way, a Christ-centered perspective will, will, by the way, keep you from the moralism. Let's try to be good dads, dad dads but at the end of the day ultimately we need our family to trust in one who's going to keep his word all of the time same would be true for moms doesn't mean it's an excuse to behave badly we do want to follow Christ but at the end of the day we're pointing outside of ourselves to the perfect one we need as a representative Okay, there's one divine author. 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God or inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We know the text. All scripture, referring to the Old Testament first and foremost. And he'll elaborate later. Breathed out by God and profitable. Okay, so ultimately we believe in one divine author. And we're going to get a little deep in the weeds here just for a moment. I don't know anyone who's here today who is a professing Christian who doesn't affirm that. This is kind of, it's kind of, Omaha Bible Church is a draw for people like that, okay? Most people who come to Omaha Bible Church who are thinking about it, they believe that there's one divine author. They believe in inspiration. You have an old school view or a biblical view of of divine authorship. I'm not telling you anything new. But what I want to suggest to you is, if you believe in ultimately one divine author who's led human beings and, and, and worked through their lives to bring about the co- completion of Scripture a la Second Peter chapter 1, you should be Christ-centered in your perspective. You should be Christ-centered in your perspective. Because if the one divine author who's been superintending all of this to be written has a purpose and has a plan it wouldn't make sense for those things that came, for example, in the Old Testament to not relate to the things that come in the New Testament. It just wouldn't make sense. You say, why are you bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because this is how Christians have have always talked. Always is dangerous, right? But broadly speaking, this is how Christians have talked. For years and years and years and years, believing in inspiration inheriting that from the Jews? Well, if there's one divine author, he's not going to say, well, here's this, this story that goes on and then I come up with another idea later that's unrelated. That is not, that's not how it's going to go. But with 
the dawn of the Enlightenment. Good things happen in the Enlightenment. Not everything is, is a wash. But when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to the supernatural, what's replacing it is the natural. So we're, let's just go 16, mid, late 1600s to mid 1700s off the top of my head, enlightenment time. When it comes to the Bible, rejection of inspiration. Rejection of one divine author. The Bible is a book with all kinds of stories written by human authors because we don't believe in the divine superintendence. Okay? It's raw naturalism. Here's why I bring that up. Up until that time, the Christian consensus is one divine author, ah, and the Christian consensus is the whole Bible's a Christian book. The whole Bible should be read and understood from a Christological kind of framework. There were different debates going on. You have the Antiochian school and you have the Alexandrian school when it comes to hermeneutics and they would fight back and forth years before that. But both schools, both schools believe the Old and New Testament are primarily about Christ. Both of those schools read the Bible from a Christological perspective up until the time of enlightenment. Then what happens? The trickle-down effect and so now the shift then, even in evangelical seminaries, conservative Bible-believing seminaries, their hermeneutics textbooks over and over and over again scold people for reading the Old Testament from a Christ-centered perspective. So even if my professors didn't know that they were influenced by enlightenment naturalism when they taught me hermeneutics, if they told me to read the Bible, the Old Testament, trying to ignore Christ... Their hermeneutic they were teaching me reflected a hermeneutic of unbelief on the wrong side of Christian history. Thankfully, there are more books being written about these things. You didn't think you were going to come to Omaha Bible Church to learn about this kind of stuff, but history does matter. It's fascinating. So conservative, go-to-the-wall, Bible-believing Christians oftentimes have taught hermeneutics, how to understand the Bible from the perspective of naturalism, not supernaturalism. Guys like Bernard Ram, who went on later to deny the faith, but my first hermeneutics textbook by Bernard Ram, scolding, 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 reading the Old Testament in light of the New. Fascinating. Okay, you know what? I think what we probably need to do is be done. Three points left. Next one is going to be, we are not Arminians. The one after that is going to be, Jesus thought this way. The next one is going to be, spiritual transformation depends upon it. The next one is going to be, because Christ is preeminent, so let's read the Bible like Christ is preeminent. So we're going to cover those things next week. Okay, and then we're going to go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So this is not just a lecture, it's, this is a long addendum to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for opportunities like this to think about Christ. In some ways it seems ridiculous that we would suggest that we should read the Bible trying to ignore Christ. Um, but it seems like it's something we've been taught and something we've inherited even if we didn't realize it. So help us to, to return to faithfulness if need be. Help us to think clearly about these things. Help us to um, 
Seek to honor Jesus Christ, the one uh, in whom you said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And we look forward to listening to him next week in Luke chapter 24. In Jesus' name, amen.